The Fourth Step, Mentor, An Age of Investment and Impact From Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood by Dennis Rainey Chapter 18, A Major League Trailblazer There is no power on earth that can neutralize the influence of a high, simple, and useful life. Booker T. Washington Jackie Robinson didn't see much of a future for himself in professional baseball. The year was 1945, and he was 26. A UCLA graduate and a World War II vet, he was trying to make a living by playing for the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro American League. He hadn't played much baseball. He'd been better known as a football star at UCLA. But when the Monarchs offered him a job, he decided to give it a try. Jackie was infuriated by the indignities that black ballplayers faced. In some stadiums, they weren't allowed to use the locker rooms because the white owners didn't like the idea of black men using the showers. He hated the segregated hotels and drinking fountains. In one instance, when the team bus stopped for gas and the station owner said the players couldn't use his bathroom, Robinson threatened to fill up the team's bus at another station. The owner changed his mind. And of course, the worst indignity of all was the fact that Major League Baseball was segregated. For decades, some of the best players in the nation, legends like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, were kept out of the big leagues. Robinson saw no hope for the situation changing or for the opportunity to move up and play baseball in the whites-only Major Leagues. Robinson later wrote, I begin to wonder why I should dedicate my life to a career where the boundaries for progress were set by racial discrimination. Robinson was contacted by Branch Rickey, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Word was that Ricky was forming a new Negro League and wanted to talk to Robinson about joining it. Robinson's meeting with Ricky on August 28, 1945, became a turning point in American history. Robinson learned that Ricky had no intention of starting another Negro League. Instead, he wanted to break the color barrier in professional baseball. And he wanted Jackie Robinson to lead the way by joining the Brooklyn Dodgers. Ricky could have chosen better players, but he was looking for someone with the right character. He had no illusions about the pressure that the first black ball player would face, the hatred that he would encounter from white players, and the impossible expectations he would feel from the black community. He wanted someone who was angry about segregation but would keep that anger in check. Choose the wrong player, he felt, and he would push the cause back by years. Branch Rickey told Robinson, If you're a good enough man, we can make this a start in the right direction. But let me tell you, it's going to take an awful lot of courage. In the meeting, Rickey confronted Robinson with examples of the situations he would face. He acted the part of ballplayers using racial slurs and trying to start fights. They'll taunt you and goad you. They'll try to provoke a race riot in the ballpark. This is the way to prove to the public that a Negro should not be allowed in the major league. Mr. Rickey, 
Are you looking for a Negro who is afraid to fight back? No, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. Robinson wondered if he was the right person for this. Did he have that kind of strength and courage? Robinson later wrote, Yet I knew that I must. I had to do it for so many reasons. For black youth, for my mother, for my wife Ray, and for myself. Ricky turned out to be an accurate prophet. After a successful year in the minor leagues, Robinson made his major league debut as the Dodgers' first baseman in April of 1947. The first resentment he faced was from his own teammates. They didn't like the idea of a black player taking a white man's spot on the roster. Many were from the South and weren't accustomed to equal treatment for blacks. Dixie Walker, one of the top Brooklyn players, worried about the reaction back home in Hueytown, Alabama, if he played with blacks. He feared how it would affect business at his hardware and sporting goods store. He said, I grew up in the South, and in those days, you grew up in a different manner. We thought that blacks didn't have ice water in their veins, and so they couldn't take the pressure of playing big league baseball. On opening day, most of the players ignored Jackie Robinson. He arrived in the locker room to discover that he hadn't been assigned a locker. His uniform was hanging on a hook on the wall. Robinson's first real test occurred in a three-game series with the Philadelphia Phillies. A flood of insults poured out of the Philadelphia dugout during the game. The Phillies insulted his appearance and yelled about the diseases that he would pass on to the Dodger players and their wives. Robinson took insults like these personally. For one wild and rage-crazed minute, I thought to hell with Mr. Ricky's noble experiment. I thought what a glorious cleansing thing it would be to let go. To hell with the image of the patient black freak I was supposed to create. I would throw down my bat stride over to the Phillies dugout and grab one of those white SOBs and smash his teeth in with my despised black fist. Then I could walk away from it all. <laughs> but Robinson withstood the temptation that day and for the entire season. Instead, he let his playing speak for him. It was more than his hitting and fielding, which improved throughout the season. He also disrupted the opposing team with his daring base running. He would take impossibly big leads off base, throwing pitchers out of their rhythm and shaking their confidence. This led to more walks and better pitches for his teammates to hit. He could take over a game even if he never got a hit. Still, he paid a price for holding back his emotions. At home, he became withdrawn from his wife, Rachel, and found it difficult to sleep. At one point, he called his sister and said, I can't take it anymore. I'm quitting. He received almost no support from his teammates, who excluded him from social outings and hardly spoke to him on road trips. The players' wives met regularly for shopping, knitting, and impromptu sleepovers, but Rachel was never invited. But as the season progressed, things began to change. 
his teammates began yelling in his defense at opposing teams, threatening retaliation if the insults continued. He was greeted by well-wishers and autograph seekers wherever he went. White kids began selling buttons at Ebbets Field that read, I'm rooting for Jackie Robinson. Most of the letters the Dodgers received were encouraging. One fan wrote, You've got a lot more friends in this country of ours than enemies. The main thing to remember is that it's the unthinking few who generally make the biggest noise. Another said, If your batting average never gets any higher than 100, and if you make an error every inning, and if I can raise my boy to be half the man that you are, I'll be a happy father. Hmm. Robinson also began to see the impact he was having on the culture. An owner of an electronics factory in New Jersey, for example, was inspired by Robinson's example and decided to integrate his factory. Late in the season, Brooklyn fans were angered when Enos Slaughter of the St. Louis Cardinals appeared to deliberately step on Robinson's foot at first base. One fan, Doug Wilder, was at the game that day, and he felt this may have been Robinson's greatest moment. He said, in showing how he would rise over and over to be the person he was. It was a tremendous lesson. Later in life, Wilder went into politics in Virginia and became the first African-American in the United States to become a governor. Robinson went on to be named the National League's Rookie of the Year in 1947, and he helped lead the Dodgers to the World Series, where they lost to the New York Yankees. In the final game of the series, each of his teammates came to his locker to congratulate him for the season. He had succeeded in integrating the major leagues. In fact, by the end of the 1947 season, there were other black players in baseball. But his greatest impact may have been in the broader American culture. As Arnold Rampersad wrote in his biography of Robinson, over a period of six months, from the first stumbling steps to the victories that closed the season, he had revolutionized the image of black Americans in the eyes of many whites. Starting out as a token, he had utterly complicated their sense of the nature of black people, how they thought and felt, their dignity and their courage in the face of adversity. No black American man had ever shone so brightly for so long as the epitome not only of stoic endurance, but also of intelligence, bravery, physical power, and grit. Because baseball was lodged so deeply in the average white man's psyche, Robinson's protracted victory had left an intimate mark there. Jackie Robinson wasn't forced to become the man to integrate Major League Baseball. Branch Rickey could have found another player, and it certainly would have been more comfortable for Robinson to follow someone else's lead. He had the ability, however, to look beyond himself. Someone had to make the sacrifice. Someone needed to blaze the trail so that others in the future would have equal opportunities. I think that many of us men face a similar choice as we reach our 30s, 40s, and 50s. We may never face the intense opposition 
that confronted Robinson. But I believe we are called to look beyond ourselves to the impact we can have on the next generation. Becoming a mentor is the fourth of the five steps of manhood. Some guys can see clearly where they are in life, but haven't developed the ability, like Robinson did, to look past themselves. A mentor, on the other hand, exhibits 2020 generational vision. He sees the need to pass on his faith and his experience to faithful men who be able to teach others also. That's found in 2 Timothy 2.2. A mentor makes decisions and orders his life to intentionally invest in the next generation. A mentor must pass on his values. Lessons learned from his mistakes, successes, and defeats, the essence of his life. He intentionally passes on wisdom to the next generation and casts a vision for how they can do the same. It's possible to step up and become a mentor when you're a young man, especially if you're put in a position of authority or influence over others. But in this section, I'm going to speak primarily to those of you who are entering what I call the primetime years. Most younger men pour their physical and emotional energy into building their careers, raising their families, and being involved in church or community. Once their children leave home, I've often seen men head in one of three directions. One, they pour their energy into a renewed effort to capitalize on their position and experience and seek further success and influence in the working world. Two, perhaps fearing the onset of older age, they regress and try to recapture their youth by seeking adventure and sensual pleasure. Or third, realizing they won't achieve the wealth and success they had dreamed about in their careers, they gradually become depressed and passive and end up squandering the assets God has given them. But there's a better path, a path of wisdom. Many men in the primetime years recognize that they now have the time and energy to broaden their influence and impact for Christ by mentoring younger men. If you are at this stage in life, my challenge to you is to step up and become a mentor. You'll find the view from this step to be quite exhilarating.